What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Brandon Webb is a former US Navy SEAL sniper New York Times best-selling author experimental aircraft pilot and entrepreneur He's the founder of The Hurricane Group, a U.S.-based digital entertainment, news, and e-commerce company. On this episode, Brandon discusses the business strategies he uses today and his new book, Mastering Fear, A Navy SEAL's Guide. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Brandon Webb, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm good, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, I, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time now. And before we dive into that, it seems like you're in a different city or a different country every other day. Where are you at today? I'm in New York. Um, I have an apartment in Manhattan, and my main home is in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico I chose because it's great weather. I, li- I like to surf, uh, but also it's a it's a the best onshore, uh, like U.S. onshore tax uh, optimization that I could find. Like it, the, the tax laws down in Puerto Rico are, are incredible. Do you have any specifics in terms of what those those laws are? Yeah, there's two laws. One called Act 20 for businesses. So if your business qualifies um, or you ask for it to be qualified under Act 20, uh, your business will be taxed at 4% flat federal tax, no, no state tax, 4% flat tax, um, which in itself is amazing. You just have to meet, you know, you have to have a few employees that are residents of Puerto Rico. Um, and typically most online businesses, um, qualify. And that's why you see a lot of the U S crypto entrepreneurs are now in Puerto Rico. Um, I've been down there four years now. Um, the other part, if you're a resident, you can apply for additional, um, law called Act 22, where you can take a tax-free dividend from your business if you if you pay yourself a, a you know a salary a reasonable salary that has a fully burdened tax rate. You can dividend above and beyond that 100% tax-free. Let's 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 just say I had a windfall and sold one of my websites for a couple million dollars. I could literally pass that dividend to myself tax-free. Um, which is an incredible, you know, incredible thing to, to have because, um, you know, it's, it's all about tax optimization. I, I have to go down another rabbit hole, but I, I read this thing in the New York Times and there's this big expose on Donald Trump's father's tax strategy and they tried to make it seem dodgy. And it's like, actually, he was just doing good estate planning because any, anyone that busts their ass building wealth do you really want to give it away to a bunch of politicians in DC to, to, to spend however they see fit? I don't think so. Like you want to preserve 
you want to preserve it either to give it to your family or give it to a charitable cause that's going to do good things in the world as opposed to um, you know, sending it to DC. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly tax optimization is, is something I've done a lot of reading on. So uh, I'm curious, four years ago, was this something you were actively seeking out and that's how you decided to move down? What happened was, to be honest, I had, I had a bad accountant put me in a really tough spot and I owed the IRS um, six figures. And it was incredibly stressful. And, you know, when you owe the IRS money, they don't care. Like they, I remember having this conversation with this IRS employee and they're like, are you ready to wire the money today? And I, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, I don't have this in my bank account right now. Like I'm trying, I was calling them to set up a payment plan and it was just stressful. And you know, the IRS is not known for its customer service. And I just said, there's gotta be a better way. Like why I would, like, I would rather give this money to some charitable cause or, you know, basically invested in something like, and so I, I started doing research. I said, okay, how do I, how do I put myself in a, a better tax situation? And I had a friend that had moved down to Puerto Rico and I remembered it, it was tax. It was around the taxes. And so I called up Dennis and I said, Hey, what's Puerto Rico all about? He's like, well, here it is. Here's all the links and the articles. And so I started reading up on it and what they did was just, they, they put four that they saw what was successful in the Virgin Islands. The Virgin Islands had a really good tax program for years and years, but they just they made it better. Um, and they just didn't market it well, in my opinion. A lot of people know about it now because the crypto craze and a lot of crypto guys went down there and, and tech guys are following. So um, it just wasn't well known. And Puerto Rico is a little different, right? It's the legal system is slightly different from the mainland U.S. Their tax or their legal system is based on the, the Spanish system, but it's U.S. tax law, U.S. banking. Um, so there's a little bit of complexity there, but once you figure it out, it's, it's not that hard. I mean, I know it's still early in your business career, but looking back, do you think that move could turn out to be one of the smartest things you've done? Absolutely, because I really started this year. I, I started... Um, it took me a while to move my my old co company assets over, and I had to pay a big tax bill. Like I had to basically get a third party valuation on the business, um, and then pay the tax on that valuation, and then transfer all my assets to my Puerto Rico company. But it, immediately, I started implementing a tax. I lowered my salary to a reasonable amount, and I started ending myself tax-free and it's you know i've just been able to accumulate start to accumulate cash which which is important to me because i think we're 2020 is probably going to trigger the next global recession and you know i'm not saying that to be alarmist I'm, it's just it's just the way the world works it's markets go up they go down and i want to stockpile some some cash because uh, you know there's a t ton of opportunities and recessions to to build massive amounts of wealth. And, and I really want to buy some real estate. Gotcha. Yeah. Now I'd love to hit on what you see in 2020 in terms of the recession, but accumulating that knowledge, what you think is going to happen in 2020, what are you reading? Who are you talking to? What type of conversations are you having to, to understand that and then plan for that? So I'm in a, 
uh, organization called the Young Presidents Organization. It's, uh, I think, over 20,000 members globally, all the top executives and business owners. And the, <clears throat> excuse me, the price to, you know, to entry, you have to be running or um, have started a business that's doing a, you know, well into eight figure revenue. Um, but, you know, I, I'm in a forum of six people that meet monthly, you know, and we have the New York chapter, we throw events, we bring in, uh, we did a mini university, it's a one week university learning experience where we brought in some of the top Harvard business professors um, to talk about uh, case, we talk about recession, the economy, we did a, a case study on vanishing middle class in America. And then we talked about the global economy. And, and that's what really kind of got me thinking about, okay, how do I prepare for this next recession? So I'm, I'm always learning. Um, you know, I, I read probably two, three books a month, uh, on business. I'm a regular reader of the economist, you know, my, my own team does a lot of, uh, financial reporting now on one of my, one of my news sites. Um, so I'm constantly in that in that conversation. I just spoke to Susie Orman last night at an event, and you know we both kind of agreed that you know she sold all of her real estate assets. She's out because it's a you know we're at the top of the market um, where real estate is concerned. You know, 2020 I think is just it's the election year. There's a lot of uncertainty um, around that. But when you point to um, there's an excellent article I read in, in, I think it was Forbes. It was this guy pointed out that when the U.S. Treasury securities, they have long-term, short-term, when, when short-term, um, I think it was when short-term outperforms long-term, this is like this ratio, and we're like a few percentage points off. But when it, when it skews the other way, um, where short-term outperforms long-term, it signals a recession 100% in every case. Um, and it's usually we're about 20 months out. So it, all the signs are there. You know, you look at macro, China's economy has slowed, like growth is cut in half, Trump's trade war, what happened in Turkey, Greece, Greece is, you know, out of their kind of bailout and they're still in trouble and they're part of the EU. It's just like all these signs are there you have you know real estate is you could argue that you know it's a bubble that's about to pop so when you just kind of add it all up you're like okay it's just it's the way the market works but nobody knows when it's going to pop and what it looks like or else they would you know be a billionaire <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i agree with you there are a lot of signs pointing towards that you, you bring up real estate specifically. And I'm curious why you've already identified that in 2020. Um, and there are specific spots in the real estate sector you're interested in. Me personally, I, I like real estate. I understand it. Um, you know, people always need a place to live. I, I like, um, I like residential income. I have just done well there in the past. Um, you know, my dad was a, owned a construction company, uh, became a developer after losing a, a his one of his businesses, um, had filing bankruptcy. But I, you know, he became a developer later on, and now has his 
his retirement really in passive incomes coming from, you know, commercial triple net property. Um, so I'm just a fan and, and, and I've watched, you know, I own, um, at least for now, I'm, I'm going to put up for sale after talking to Susie last night, probably. But I, <laughs> I have an income property in Portland, Oregon. You know, I have a place in, in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm, and I've been holding off on Manhattan because it's just been, it's been too frothy of a, a market. But now I'm seeing it's, it's starting to come down. And so um, when I say 2020, I just figure like... 2020 or sooner is in a 2020 is election year and he, and you know markets don't like uncertainty and and that's like people don't know what's going to happen right like i personally i think unless the democrats put up somebody really really strong i think trump's going to get reelected if if he wants to be um and it just is that you know i'm not a huge trump fan but that that seems likely but there's a lot of uncertainty around that and and uh so we'll see it's uh, but again i i tell this to my some of my friends in business and they you know some people don't like to talk about it they get the you know they're like oh why do you want to talk about the recession i'm like no it's an opportunity that's why i see it as a huge opportunity so why why not plan for it and prepare so you're so you're in a good spot yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I, I love these types of conversations. Uh, I think a lot of people, like you just mentioned, are afraid to have them. And, and it's so good for people to to understand what could be coming and then really prepare for it. You mentioned the crypto craze down in Puerto Rico. I know you're interested in it, involved in it. What initially got you involved when you first become involved with crypto? I got interested in crypto uh, when my best friend, Kamal, um, whose brother Naval started Angelus. Um, you know, Kamal comes from Silicon Valley. He he has a small technology venture capital fund that what I was I was investing um, in, with him, and he started to really get into crypto. Um, and it's, I mean, it's confusing. There's so many you know aspects to to cryptocurrency. And I think people are afraid to ask questions because it is, it is confusing. Like every time I do more research, I come out feeling less smart. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll happen with crypto. Yeah. But I, so I just got, I really read up on blockchain and I, I, I feel like blockchain has the ability to disrupt so many industries because you you basically created this digital trust mechanism um, which replaces company like escrow companies, for instance, the reason you use escrow is it's this third, you know, third party that's unbiased and, you know, two parties put their money in or whatever, or there's this exchange that happens and the escrow is, is, is the trusted mechanism for that. But blockchain kind of replaces that, you know, in, in a digital form. So I started getting interested in blockchain and then, um, I made an investment into um, it, it started out as basis coin. It was a coin. If you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not a very transactional um, cryptocurrency, right? It's, it's almost like digital gold. There's like large value swings. It, it's, it's a big chunk of value in one coin. So it's not something that, you know, you'd want to use to, 
<clears throat> excuse me, to pay for stuff easily. Like I'm not going to go down to the coffee shop and swipe my Bitcoin card. But um, so this new currency that I learned about with Kamal was that it was mainly that Kamal invests in teams and people who are passionate about about what they're doing. <clears throat> but he explained it to me. It's it's designed to be a transactional coin backed by U.S. by U.S. dollar and in and basically the the team behind it is just incredible and I now it's called I think um, Base Coin but it hopefully comes out this year but it got me I was like wow this sounds incredible um, so I, I invested in that but it, Kamal is the one that got it, got me interested in it and um, I just see it as the future right it's it's and I think where people get confused is there are these companies that are able to to print their monopoly money and they do these ICOs and there's a lot of fraud and um, you know people got into the market not understanding what they're what they're buying and I think that you know that in many cases is is a shame but you know crypto is here to stay it's not going any anywhere I mean even Elon Musk was talking about doing a like how are they going to when they colonize Mars, what are they going to use to transact with? And he was talking about a Mars coin. So, um, no, it's just exciting stuff. And, and, and when I talked to Kamal about it, it was, he said, look, I was, I remember seeing the dot-com bubble. These things don't come around very often. And if you make good bets, you can really, really do well. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm, you know, just taking like 10% of my, you know, investment money is going into, into kind of crypto, um, the rest is in real estate because uh, I just I like real estate. I mean, you mentioned Kamal. He's looking for specific founders and the teams put in place for these companies. When you look to invest, is that what you're also looking for, whether that's building a company or investing in a crypto? Yeah. I, so with Kamal, it, Kamal is my easy button because I know his, <laughs> his, it's like, OK, you say it's good. I'm going to invest in it. So but he does that. But it's because he's he really invests in, you know, big potential wins in the teams. Like he, he told me, he's like, if I walk into a pitch meeting and the first thing the founder starts talking about is exit, he's like, I'm out of there. He's like, I don't want to hear about that. Um, you know, and then he talked to me about an investment he made a couple of years ago where he's like, I didn't even understand this guy was so smart. I just wanted to invest in him. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> understand what he was doing he's like i'm just gonna give you money because i know whatever you do it's gonna be like incredible so he likes that passion um you know in the team like is the team passionate are they motivated are they are they you know technically competent and and in the other sense like i invested in a um a mobile home park uh, earlier this year with a with a group that that's all they do they find these undervalued, undermanaged uh, mobile home parks, and they go in there and they optimize and and they turn it around. And in four or five years, they flip it and they make a ton of money for their investors and and they pay a dividend right away. Um, and so I, on the same side, like these guys are so good at what they do, and that's all they do. And so, um, you know, that's. If I'm investing outside of my own, um, in the real estate, you know, in a way like that, that's kind of what I'm what I'm looking for. But I I like to manage my own money. I don't like, you know, 
I get harassed all the time. And especially when I'm in New York by the, these money managers, it's like, literally I told this guy from UBS, it's like, dude, how, how much do you have in the bank right now? And, and he's got really embarrassed and I'm like, okay, why would I pay you to manage my money? Like I'm, I made it, I'm going to manage it myself. <laughs> and, and you know, I was, Susie Orman was talking about this last night. It's not that hard. If you're going to invest in the stock market, just invest in an index fund. Um, like you don't need to pay somebody to invest, really invest your money. You invest in some, a little bit of education and, and then just do it yourself. When speaking about money, obviously you've accumulated a lot. Do you have a specific number in terms of what you need per year to live your lifestyle? So that's a great question, and and I I'm glad you brought it up because when I I was in a I was in business school, and one of the first things we did was how much is enough, and everyone had to write down a budget for a year, like a yearly budget, and it was write down your your dream year, like if you could live the way you want to live, have two homes, a housekeeper, take two, three vacations, um, you know, within reasonable limits, right? Like no one could, you know, you couldn't put the mega yacht and the G5 on there, but you could just write down like, hey, what's a good life? And you realize like time is finite. You can only do so much in a 24-hour period. Um, you could only spend so much money. And so we did this exercise and we all got to within probably – you know, $10,000 of each other. And it was about $400,000 to like really live a life that, you know, without compromise. And so then once you get to 400,000, you back into the math, right? Okay, well, how much do I have to have invested to produce $400,000 of passive income? And, you know, to not draw down on the principal and it's about $10 million. And then, you, you know, and when you say that to people, they get shocked. Like, oh my God, well, that's, that's, I don't need 400,000. Okay. Well, if you, you can half it, you know, then it's 5 million, half it again. And it's two and a half. So it's still a big number. And, and it, I think it's shocking to many people because they realize, wow, how am I going to save even two and a half million dollars earning even six figure income? Right. So you have to really get smart on, you know, how you invest your money, you have to, you know, you have to start saving, um, and then look at what are other mechanisms to kind of produce value. And, and when you look globally, how wealth is distributed, the top 1%, it's close to 80% of the top 1% is from businesses. It's from creating value in, in a, in a business, you know, the other 1%, one, two, three percent are, you know, doctor, celebrity, professional athlete, but it's very small percentage. The, the, the large percentage comes from owning a business, creating, you know, wealth through, through companies. So, um, that's what it just hit me on the head. I'm like, okay, I, I've got to, I've got to do this. And like, this is, and so, you know, my number was, you know, a couple of years, years ago, 10 million, you know, it's adjusted up since then. But, um, I think people, people need to, to have these conversations around money and wealth. Uh, 
I'm starting to educate my own kids because people don't talk enough about it. We don't learn enough in school about, you know, how the economy works, how, you know, how to save money, invest. It's just not taught enough in school. And, you know, to be honest, this, I love America, but um, we did this exercise in my Harvard, this little Harvard mini university we did. And we said, the professor Rowie was like, Hey, what makes America great? And everyone's like, well, you know, cause you don't have, you could be born into nothing and, and, you know, make something of yourself. And, and that used to be true. But when you look at the data, the data points that it really matters now, just like it does in Russia and South America, what income level you're born into statistically determines how you're going to end up in life. And that used to not be the way in America, but it is today. Like, and so when you look at the way, you know, and that, that has to do with this vanishing middle class also the, the basically in America, we've been pushed to the extremes. We have the, the income gap has grown really big. We have the very wealthy and, and the, the poor, and that's why you see our politics get pushed to the extremes because you're either you're either talking to one group or the other. And it's like Trump on one side, Bernie Sanders on the other. Um, and so our politics have gotten extremely pushed to the fringes. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I think we have to have these conversations to, to kind of talk about right sizing um, the middle class problem, but also like, how do we, how do we teach our kids and make like, to me, giving somebody a handout isn't the solution, right? It's that old saying, you know, give somebody a fish for dinner and, and you, you know, you make him. Yeah. Teach a man to fish. Yeah. Teach a man to fish, feed him for life. And I, I think really we have to, at the core issue, really overhaul our education system in, a, in this country um, and think about ways for America to gain, a, to keep the technology edge that we have, because it's getting, it's getting eroded. And America is not the best place today to be an entrepreneur. It's probably Estonia, um, where you don't have to worry about getting sued for, um, for some silly thing, um, because it, the litig, the litigious nature of, of America is out, out of control. Like you could fire somebody for cause and they're suing you um, because some lawyer will take it on a contingency basis and, 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 and know that your insurance company is likely to settle rather than fight it because it's more expensive. So uh, anyway, I'm on a full-blown tangent now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I love hearing about this and I can only imagine some of the, the headaches you have on a daily basis from, uh, from litigation. But I, I'm also curious, what are you spending your money on that actually brings you the most amount of joy and most amount of value? Um, I spend money on experiences. Like this summer I took my, my kids to Europe. My oldest son went to study in Spain. He went to Morocco with, with his school and then he went, to, we put him in a program in the South of Spain where he lived with a family and, and went to a Spanish class eight hours a day. Um, while he was doing that, I took his, um, sister and younger brother to, um, to the UK, we went to London, south of France, Italy. Um, I fly. I'm really passionate about aviation. I'm a member of the flying club in Lake Como, so I can I can rent their seaplanes. So I took them flying um, on the lake. 
you know, we went to Rome and, and just for me, it's like opening their eyes up to the world and different culture, um, different economies. I think traveling, um, for me, I was fortunate enough to have adventurous parents and, you know, I grew up on a sailboat and did a ton of traveling when I was a kid, but I, it really opened my eyes up to the world. Um, uh, and it made me more, more tolerant. I think people kind of, you, you have a tendency if, if you don't understand like culture, um, it could be shocking, right? Like an example, I had a friend in, in, uh, who was a mortgage broker. He had immigrated from Russia and we were talking about this real estate project. Well, back when I was in the Navy and investing in, in residential real estate, and he's like, okay, who do we have to bribe? And I was like, Alex, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But I didn't think of him as like a lot of people would have been shocked and be like, oh, you're just a bad person. It's like, no, it's actually just the way it works in Russia. Like it's common. Um, you know, in, you know, in America, it's like, okay, you got to donate to, a uh, somebody's, you got to do a campaign contribution or throw a, a politician, a, a fundraiser where everyone writes a hundred dollar checks because they don't have to report a hundred dollars. Like that's, it's a kind of legal form of bribery. But the, the point is by like ex- experiencing these different cultures, you you realize and become more tolerant to the way the world works um but anyway i the point is like i spend my money on experience it's experiences um because you know that kind of thing you know rather than buy my kids the latest iphone i would rather take them on a trip uh you know or, or if they want a new phone it's like hey like my my oldest son is incredibly my, all my kids are smart, but he's really, really loves doing analyst work for me. He's 16 and I go, okay, go study, go produce this market study on, on the media landscape. And you know, that you're going to start doing that. And then you can earn your, your new phone that way. But I want 10 papers. Hmm. So, um, but I think experience, uh, because that really, it, it, for, for me, my friends and my family, um, you know, you're investing in yourself. Um, I don't, I, I'm really a minimalist. Um, I, I like having things, but I don't like having too much because it does create, um, it, it just takes up a lot of your time to manage stuff. And unless you have the money to, to kind of hire a team to deal with, you know, for instance, if you had enough money to buy a, a boat and keep it in the Mediterranean, like imagine the the resources and time it takes to manage that, that, that boat, right. You've got to have a crew or you got to minimum once a year, that thing has to be hauled out and maintained, um, you know, taxes, storage fees, all this stuff. Like who's going to do all that? Like you got to have a, a team to do it. Um, or you're doing it yourself and it takes a tremendous amount of time. So, um, you know, I'm, I like simple, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I won't own any more than I have a plane I'm a partner in and two that I own myself. I would never do any more than that because it's just too much. Like I've got to get those planes inspected every year, make sure that they're being properly maintained and, and anything above that, it just creates stress in my life. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it it seems that you're, you're basically, basically obsessed with aviation and and how'd you first get involved in it? I, I think it was, I started getting into sci-fi. I remember my mom forced my dad to take me to Star Wars. This was when Star Wars came out and there was like lines. You had to wait an hour to see the movie. 
my my dad at the time he was like i don't believe in this sci-fi bullshit my mom is just like take him i don't care take <laughs> take him to see star wars so my dad and i walked out of star wars and he was like born again star wars he's like oh my god that was the best movie i've ever seen in my life so he became like full-on star wars fan and and we started as a family just grew up watching buck rogers Battlestar galactica and and those two series are heavy into piloting right like they're all flying these spaceships and i became obsessed with being a pilot and it, it was something I actually wanted to do in the military. I just, my life path took me somewhere different. I ended up being a SEAL, but I just always loved aviation. And when I was, you know, 28 year old Navy SEAL, I had a, I had a big block of vacation time saved up. And I, I told my command, I said, Hey, I want to use this all at once because I want to get my pilot's license. And, and I was actually taking night class at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University uh, studying aeronautics, an aeronautics degree, because I thought I wanted to be a pilot and like a paid commercial pilot. And then I realized maybe not the best career uh, for me. And so um, I, they let me go. I got my pilot's license when I was 28. I got my instrument rating right after that. I started flying aerobatics. Then I got, uh, I met a guy, D. Uh, who became a really good friend and mentor of mine. He was an Air Force fighter pilot that had done very well in biotech. He got out and, and got into business and biotech. I mean, this guy has no biotech experience, but he, this is what I love about D. He just went to U, UCSD. Um, I, I remember seeing these books on at this breakfast place in San Diego we used to eat at. I'm like, dude, what are you reading up on cancer for? He's like, oh, I'm going to start a drug that's going to cure cancer. And so he like literally during the, this was like 2009, he was buying millions and millions of dollars of biotech lab equipment for nothing because all these companies have went out of business during the last recession and built this company up and sold it two years later for a ton of money. Uh, but he, he's obsessed with aviation too. Like he practically has his own air force now in San Diego. He bought five F5 jets off of Canadian government. Like he is obsessed as I am. And he said, look, buy a, buy this yak. It's for sale in San Francisco and come fly with us. We'll train you up. He's like me and my guys, they do this like fight club twice a year in airplanes. And he said, come fly with us. So I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. And that, so I, I bought a yak 52, which is a Russian two seat trainer, big radial engine, um, I got a hangar next to D's kind of aviation empire at Gillespie Field in San Diego and started flying with those guys about six years ago. And now I, I got my formation sign off by the FAA. My check ride was done by one of the original Top Gun instructors, uh, this guy, uh, Condor. And, and just it's been an amazing experience. Like I've, I've had air combat instruction from this guy, Bill, who has 400 hours flying the space shuttle. Like it's just a really special group of guys. And it's the kind of flying I've always kind of dreamt of as a kid. Um, and doing it with like these amazing, amazing people. Like these guys are, you know, active duty military pilots or they're out flying for the airlines or they built their own companies. It's just a really special group. And that, that to me is just, um, 
I love aviation. I mean, I, I love flying anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you can see it on your Instagram. And it's kind of why I asked the question about what you spend your money on experiences and then flying. Uh, we'll definitely have it linked up in the show notes. But what's been your favorite flight of all time? Is there one that's just very memorable to you? I would say, because I love, I grew up on boats, you know, my, I grew up since 13 working on a scuba diving boat. And, um, and, you know, I had a family sailboat. I, I don't know if you know this, my dad threw me off the boat in Tahiti when I was 16. Um, we were on a kind of around the world sailing trip. Um, but I love boating. Um, uh, that story, I talk about it in the red circle, which is the first book I wrote about my childhood and, and how I became a seal. Um, but I, I love seaplane flying because it's, so I, when I think of a couple flights that stand out, it would be the first time I took off on floats in Lake Como, Italy, because um, it combines this kind of like boating and flying experience all at one, and, it, and it's it's kind of wild. Like you, you can land anywhere you want, but you got to you know look at what the wind's doing and on the water, avoid boat wakes, and it's it's a great kind of adventurous flying, and and I love that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where <laughs> he's running out of the cave and. <laughs> jumping on that float plane um so the you know that flight in italy and then probably when i bought my rv i bought my rv6 in seattle and flew it down with uh nick one of the guys that works for me who's a photographer we flew from seattle to san diego in one day and it was just like this beautiful flight past you know uh mount hood um into the over Napa Valley, just cloud surfing. Um, that was an amazing flight. And then, you know, probably when I got my, the top three would be that those two. And then when I got my, my formation flight sign off was a, was a big accomplishment. And it's just when you're flying close formation and, um, you know, breaking apart and bringing back together a formation and flight, it's hard to explain it to somebody that doesn't, haven't experienced it, but that is a pretty amazing thing. And, um, I would say those are the kind of top three that stand out. And then I've had a couple close calls too early on where I just did some stupid stuff. Like Glenn Doherty, my best friend who died in that Benghazi incident. He was a passionate pilot too. He's a SEAL buddy of mine that went to work for the CIA. I bought my first Cessna in Chicago and and we flew it back in February. It was just the stupidest thing I've probably done in aviation to fly a, a Cessna and like in between snowstorms, sneak it back to the West Coast. It was just, I mean, that, that story is another 30 minute story. But, <laughs> um, you know, you do some things like that and you scare yourself and it, it, you know, you chalk it up to experience and you just hopefully make better decisions in the future. Do you have a future flight you hope to accomplish? Yeah. I, I want to, I want to break the around the world, uh, speed record in a single engine aircraft. And so that's a goal of mine. It was something I was going to do with Glenn. We were talking about it. Um, it's not something I want to do alone. I think it's too dangerous to do by yourself, but it's not a hard record to break. Um, and then the technology advancements and like aerodynamics and fuel efficiency, it, I think it's just, up for grabs and i to me that to do something like that as an accomplishment but also you know raise awareness for a foundation that i'm involved in uh, the red circle foundation it's kind of a twofold you, you get to 
do something really cool, but also for a really good cause and, and raise a bunch of money and, and awareness for that. Like that, that's kind of a win-win, but that that's something that's on my long-term goals. What's the current record? Um, it's, I think it, the one, the category that I want to do, I think it's four and a, it's like four days and, and, and like 10 hours, something like that, but which can be smashed. Like it's just, you know, I did the calculations. It's not a, a hard one to, to beat. I'll be fired up to see you do that. You've brought up a lot of interesting people so far. Obviously, one of your best friends, Kamal, you mentioned D. It seems like you're constantly surrounding yourself with, I don't want to say smarter people, but people who might know more about something than you do. Have you, have you always been like this? And then are you actively searching those people out or do they just kind of keep compiling on top of each other? I, in business school, I read a book called The Tree of Knowledge. It was the, the best book I've ever read and also the hardest book I ever read. I read it in a study group. Uh, Umberto Maturana is one of the authors. It's, it was this incredible book. And without getting into details, it, it really spent a lot of, you know, even on the single cellular level, the environment around that cell determines like cellular structure. And so when you bring that forth into like human human beings and how our environment really produces different outcomes. So I learned basically to, to boil it down, I learned that your environment matters. Like who you surround yourself really matters, friends and family. And you know, whether it's sports or I'll, I love to ski and I moved to Tahoe um, back in 2012 and I started skiing with this guy, Ben. And, and I grew up skiing in, when I was born in Canada. Um, I've always skied, but I became such a better skier because Ben was a professional and he pushed me and gave me pointers. And all of a sudden my skiing level just went, went to a place where I didn't think was possible. Uh, and, and that's just an example of like surround yourself with good people that have your back and, it's like a rising tide lifts all ships and that it truly is like it, they understand reciprocation, which means they help you, you help them. There's, I've been in, I made some big mistakes helping people that just didn't reciprocate and actually end up stabbing me in the back um, to make it even worse. So I just started really searching out for searching out really good people and saying, okay, how can I add value to their life um, and and offer something in return um, and and get something back? And so I just started looking for quality people that I wanted to be around. And I just I have a no asshole rule in my life. Like I just and I have a one strike rule. Like you, you know, you screw me over and it's done. Like I'm not I'm not there is no second second chance. And when I started doing that, I just started accumulating like a really tight group of people. And when you, when you're in this kind of like tight network, you know, you always want to help each other. You're always trying to bring other people in and, and, and it just, it's, it's like an investment. It just starts paying dividends. You mentioned adding value. And when you're assessing your, assessing your own traits and your own skills, what do you think you're better at than anyone else? If you're going to bring value to any situation, what's it going to be? I, so I, what I'm really good at is execution. Like, there's tons of great ideas out there. It's just very, very few people will execute. So I'm, 
when I mean, I talk about Kamal, he's like, your superpower is getting shit done. Um, and so, I mean, that's my, my, um, strength. I think what I offer people is some leadership and strategic perspective. Like, you know, the, the time I did serve in the, the SEAL teams, um, and, you know, going from, you know, a new guy SEAL to being put in charge of the, the West Coast sniper program as an, as an E6, which is normally a job that an E8 would do. So they, they had to promote me to, to chief, um, cause I was, I was running this course as like a junior guy, but I was the, I was the most qualified. Um, but you know, in managing, uh, you know, managing a group of alpha males and, um, in a, and bringing in some of the best consultants in the world to help us, you know, take a 30% attrition rate and take it down to 0%. And a lot of that was anchored in positive psychology and, and positive teaching versus negative teaching. Like the, that kind of experience, I think I add, I, I add value to my friends. Like my friend Marco is, he's the CEO of uh, Bank of Santander, wholesale banking for the Americas. I mean, he's an incredible human being, but they want, he wants to know those, Hey, what, in this kind of crisis situation, how did you, how did you deal with this or how do you deal with that? They, so I, I know that kind of seal experience adds value for people. Um, you know, and in aviation, I share aviation. I take people flying week, weekly and, and I create a unique experience. I've taken people that lived in New York for, for 10 plus years flying over Manhattan over the Statue of Liberty, Central Park. And it's like, they've never experienced New York like this before. And so I, I try and add, always add value, um, to people. Like when Matt Meeker, who founded BarkBox, which is, a, I think they're up over 600,000 subscribers, um, to that BarkBox, uh, for dog owners, he agreed to come on my advisory board. And I, part of like my courting process, like, Matt, let's, let's go take a flight over New York. Um, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah, envious of the people who get to go on those flights with you. And, and you mentioned what Kamal said about you, that you just get shit done. And we were talking offline about your new third-party logistics company, GSD Logistics. I have to assume the GSD is for get shit done. <laughs> it actually is. I technically, <laughs> it stands for Global Solutions Dynamics. Oh, <laughs> uh, gotcha. Uh, but that's 100%. You nailed it. I mean, that it's that's the kind of underlying um message behind it and it it was you know that business grew out of frustration with um one of the first uh 3pls we were using in in Connecticut they just didn't understand technology they were in a very tax unfriendly high labor um area and and, and you know the 3PLs have been around for a long, long time. And I, I think it's a, in America, especially a, an industry that is ripe for disruption because you have this transition that's happening now where traditional, unless you have, have an experience-based bricks-and-mortar retail outlet where you go into this place and it's, it's an experience in itself that you can't get shopping online, then that would be a, like a Saks Fifth Avenue, a Bass Pro Shops where there's like, fish tanks and shooting ranges and indoors, like this crazy stuff you can do. Um, you're, 
you're seeing a lot of bricks and mortar gets put out of business from e-commerce. So when you're shifting, when all this like shift from online shopping is happening, these companies that start these online e-commerce businesses, they have to either have their own warehouse, which is a separate business in itself, or they're using third-party fulfillment. And Amazon does third-party fulfillment. They'll stock your stuff and ship it, but they're very, very expensive. They're very easy, but they're very expensive. And when you start scaling up with Amazon, you realize, wow, I'm losing a ton of margin. Um, And so we saw, my partner and I saw an opportunity to stand up a a modern third-party logistics business to to really focus on the e-commerce space um, and you know, we, without even trying, we've, we've, we've about to onboard two more customers. My, my value there was I can bring over millions of dollars in shipping right away with my existing e-commerce business and drop that into the company. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a, you know, mid seven figure business right out of the gate. And then just add on top of that with, with other, with other companies that need fulfillment, you know? So if, if you're selling, uh, like one of our one of our new potential customers is in the supplement space, so they they have a really good brand, um, high quality product. It's a collagen protein, and um, you know they they're using a fulfillment center on the west coast, and you know their center is they'll sell a twenty dollar product, and the their logistics company was sending it to the east coast overnight for eighty bucks, and he's like, that doesn't work. Like those those, those numbers don't work. So there's a ton of like room for a company that can really offer value and and affordable sh- shipping, smart shipping. You know, we're in a our first warehouse is in a DHL hub. So when I brought over my shipping, we we're saving twenty percent out of the gate uh, a month uh, on shipping costs, and we are aggressive on integrating to into. Um, e-commerce platforms. So tying in like your warehouse management software. So when, if you sold a hundred products in a day, you know, those transactions go right into our warehouse management software and we're shipping out those orders out same day and shipping at the best rate. Or maybe, maybe, you know, the warehouse management software says, okay, if you wait one more day, your shipping costs will be even less. And so you can, you can pass on that savings to the customer um, but I'm, I'm excited about that business. Yeah, no, I have a, I have a company I'll have to connect you with their CEO once we get off here, who I think might be interested in using your services. You mentioned that industry ripe for disruption. I know how your brain seems to work. What other industries are you looking at right now that you just think are without a doubt ripe for disruption? Um, back to the blockchain conversation. I, I think the real estate industry, the whole escrow industry, um, is ripe for, um, disruption. I mean, creating, um, you know, real estate in general, like it's, you have so many real estate professionals and, and they just, they show you what they're, they're incentivized to show you properties where they get the highest return on uh, commission, where what they should be focused on providing the best value to the customers. So I think like an, like a version of Uber for real estate, residential and commercial, where it's this, automated marketplace that lets you truly find what you're looking for. And you're seeing the, you're seeing the whole market, um, for what, what it is, where I know I've in New York, I've got to go get three or four agents 
and put them on certain zones because I know that's their, they either work a certain borough or area of Manhattan. And then I got to make sure I'm checking them on, on street easy or, or one of the, the websites. And because I know they're not going to show me everything. They're going to show me what they think is in their best interest, not what's in my best interest. So having a software come along that can basically integrate blockchain and act as the virtual real estate agent and escrow without any of those um, people involved is extremely valuable. So there's a, you know, there's an industry ripe for, for disruption. Any retail business that isn't going all in on e-commerce and focusing on having maybe a few flagship stores um, that provide an incredible experience, they're toast. Look at Toys R Us. Um, you know, Toys R Us, I would have scaled that business down to three or five stores, major metropolitan areas, and went, like, just made that the store that any mom in America would want to take their kid to because it's an experience, childcare, everything. It's like Ikea does a great job of that. Um, but Barnes, Barnes & Noble on the chopping block for sure. Like, I... And I hate to say that because I, I'm an author and I Barnes and Noble buys books, but I, I can't see those guys. They're, they're like a couple years best. Um, they're done. Like they just the bookshops that provide an experience to me are like the Strand Bookstore or Powell's in Portland, Oregon. It's like this incredible curated experience you can't get online, um, and and they'll they'll thrive and survive and in the e-commerce landscape, but Barnes and Noble, they're toast, man. Like there, there's no reason to go into Barnes and Noble. It's not a good experience to even drink a cup of coffee there anymore. It's like you're getting, they're selling anything they can sell just to make money. Um, it's just not a good experience. I love how you're playing on the edges of different industries and finding out how to mold those two together. Um, I know the listeners are going to be mad. We didn't talk anything about your SEAL background, but obviously you mentioned your book, uh, The Red Circle. One I love that goes through that. There's plenty of different podcasts you've been on to talk about that. We have to talk for a second about your new book, Mastering Fear, though, uh, how that got inspired to be written and then uh, what the listeners can get from it. Yeah, so I, I taught Kamal how to swim. He had this fear of water. Um, and I, I didn't know that until I got to know him and then realized, wow, like you're so successful, but why haven't you done this? He's like, well, I tried, but no one's been able to kind of deal with my fear and help me overcome it. So, you know, long story short, I, I said, just give me a week and let me see if I can put together a, a program one hour every morning. Um, and I took him from Monday. I, I applied a lot of the same mental management, like positive psychology principles we had adopted when I was um, a sniper instructor in the SEALs. And I kind of thought about, okay, I have to take him and have these small baby steps of confidence building. And so if on Monday, you know, I took him to the pool and at my athletic club and he was terrified, like a guy that would, you know, gripping the the steel ladder to get in and pushing off and grabbing for the edge of the pool right away. Um, I was like, wow, okay, I've got my work cut out for me. So I, I took him and just started doing small confidence building stuff like, Hey, I know you don't want to put your face in the water, but you're going to do it a hundred times. Just hold the side of the pool, face in the water, face out of the water and kind of like work on his breathing. 
Um, then I showed them how to use your lungs as, as a way to float. I said, look, I'm going to float here. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm not, I'm going to float on the surface. I'm not going anywhere. Then I'm going to let my air out and sink to the bottom. And so I, I started doing these drills with him. And by Friday, he was able to jump into the pool in a cannonball, which he loves doing cannonballs now. Um, and like a kid and, and sink himself 12 feet down hold his breath at the bottom of the pool and then push up and, and he could swim. Like he's not going to, you know, break any records, but the guy can swim and he's safe in the water. And on the subway ride back on Friday, he's like, you, you dealt with my fear and helped me overcome that rather than just like shove me into swimming stroke. And he's like, you gotta like, you gotta like read a book or write a book about this because it changed my life. And, and then I, you know, like, Kamal said, I get shit done. I, I sold the book a week later, the concept of penguin. Um, but that was the inspiration behind it. And, and I just thought when I wrote the book with my writing partner, John, I said, John, I gotta, I gotta like figure out what a system is that anyone could use to kind of deal with fear and smaller or in a big, big fear. Um, and so I, I learned myself like writing the book and, and really what, what people will get out of it is one realizing that myself and the, and the people I showcase in the book, like astronaut Scott Kelly, who thought he wasn't good enough for the astronaut program. He, he was afraid to apply for it. Like I show, I feature people that are successful in various industries from my friend, CJ Ramon, who's a bass player of the Ramones to Scott Kelly, to myself, um, Betsy Morgan, who was afraid of career change when she left CBS to take over the Huffington Post as their first kind of uh, professional CEO. Les Moonves at CBS said she was crazy. Like, no one's going to read news on, on the Internet. That's what he told her. <laughs> so, um, um, which is hilarious. But the, you know, the thing is, we all deal with fear on a daily basis. But if you can develop a habit of confronting your fear and embracing adversity as a learning tool, you can do anything you, you set your mind to. And, and that's kind of the, the main value proposition of the book is to just show people, look, you're not alone. Everybody has fear. Um, but, you know, best to kind of get on with your life. And, and if something's holding you back in career or relationships, um, you know, develop, habits of, of overcome, overcoming your fear and you could start small. And, um, but anyway, there's a ton of stuff in there, but I, it's probably one of my, the favorite book I've written because it's done the most good. Like I, I get messages every day on social media for people like, Hey, this has really helped me out. And it, I was in a tight spot, whether it was div divorce or career change. Um, so I'm really, I'm proud of that book and that it's, it's going to help people out. Yeah, you should be. And I don't bring up books with authors unless I truly do appreciate them and think they'll bring value to the listeners. This is one I've shared with multiple people for the examples you just brought up, how different things in their life this can help them get over. So the book is Master Fear, A Navy SEAL's Guide. You mentioned your co-author, John David Mann. I definitely recommend the listeners get this. Where else can they stay connected with you? I know you're big on social. You have a lot going on. Where should they go? Um, honestly, Instagram. Instagram, uh, just at Brandon T. Webb. I'm very active on Instagram. Um, my author site is brandontylerweb.com. That you can find all my books there. 
Um, but I like I like Instagram. I've curated this kind of fun, creative environment, and and I like engaging with people. Um, I have, as of this morning, not one unanswered message um, on Instagram. So, uh, you know, I do I do have some help managing it, but I'm a, I'm active on there, and in that. You know, it's I try and show, um, you know, positive, inspirational or share positive, inspirational messages on, on that platform. And, and also, Kamal and I are we have this weekly Instagram show now where um, we just answer people's questions. It's like a 10 minute show. So we just started that. The first episode will be up in a week. on IG. Oh, awesome. I can't wait to check that one out. Cool. Well, Brandon Webb, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there, sharing your life experiences, and then bringing a ton of value today. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It was a great conversation. For the what got you there listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.